Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. Uh, my guest today is Rich Cohen, who's a great writer. He's written some books that I've read more than once. I think he's written 16 books. I've definitely read 10 of 16, which is a very, very high. You know, I, I didn't read the one about some Chicago teams because, uh, I mean, you know, I'm from New York. His new book is called When the Game Was War, the NBA's Greatest Season. If you've been listening to this podcast or you know me in any way, you know what a big NBA person I am and how much the NBA means to me. The book before this, though, which is called The Adventures of Herbie Cohn, World's Greatest Negotiator. Rich, I, I have to say, and you know this is so because we talked and had lunch, I think that's an, a monumental achievement, man. And um, I'm so grateful that you wrote this, this father-son story when you did because I think it explains a lot of your work. And it even, in a way, this book is suffused with your pop. Did that book, did the Herbie book feel watershed to you in any way? Yeah, it felt like underneath everything, because people, people talk about, um, like I seem to have no common, I have no beat. I'm writing nonfiction books, but they're about what seemingly are completely different topics. Like the Rolling Stones and my father and the Cubs and Jerry Jewish, Weintraub, Jerry Weintraub, Jewish gangsters, you know, but they are all they're connected like under the soil at the root is the way I feel it. At the root is really my family and my father. That's what I think too. Yeah, yeah, reading them, that's what I feel. Right. So I felt like the book about my father is sort of the source code for everything else I do, and even this basketball book because my father was a basketball coach. There's a whole basketball thing in it, and it's his like lessons for life often came out of stuff from sports, watching and playing. And he, his view of the world was shaped by New York basketball because he grew up playing basketball in, you know, Bensonhurst, Brooklyn. Well, yeah, I was going to say not only his, was he a coach, but he was um, a great player and that served him like when he was in the military and it served him in all sorts of difficult situations, right? Yeah, because you could always go out, guys. He always said the military was such a great experience for him because he met people from all over the country because before that he'd only met people from Brooklyn. He'd never been on a plane. He'd never been out in New York. You know, this is like in the late 50s or early 60s. So suddenly he, by a weird snafu or something, he ended up in an, a unit from Arkansas. Yeah. You know, and he ended up on the, in the, on the Fulda Gap, which was the, the epicenter of the Cold War where the, German, where the Russian tanks were going to come through World War III. All his training in the military was in guerrilla fighting because as soon as the war began, they were either dead or behind the lines in the first hour. You know, it was just this kind of unit. So, and, but there are all these guys and the one thing they did to like, get rid of the stress was play basketball. Right. And, and, and also obviously, you know, he was, a, he was a Jewish man. Yeah. At a time when that was a pretty exotic and not necessarily celebrated thing well, he, in he had, places like the Arkansas military unit. Yeah. Well, he used to, uh, he told me that he would put up a, his Hanukkah card like on, in the barracks and the sergeant would come and go, Chanuki, because it was the CH right. Hanukkah. What yeah, the hell the is Chanuki? Well, you know, yeah, no, uh, but it's interesting, you know, and, and, and the other thing is, you know, you'd written before about your family, the Sweet and Low book is, is great because on your mother's side, they, that family uh, invented sweet, sweet and Low and had the factory and were powerful. And your dad often is the, um, his grit, his ability to influence, connect with people, and then that ability to connect with people as um, a means by which you could influence their actions, sell to them but also his sort of the way in which he was a very effective or good dad to you and everything. And then you learned things that you really only talk about for the first time in the Herbie book in right. a deep way about things that were revealed that he wasn't always exactly as he portrayed himself. Right. And then that struck a chord in me with the work because it feels like a lot of the work is about the way in which people are layered and about figuring out how the top note relates to whatever strikes at their core. And I feel like that's at play in, in many of your books. Does yeah. that track for you? Yeah, I mean, with my father, as everybody I got to know later, you know, because it's a human thing. Like, I, I had this realization because his book was You Can Negotiate Anything, big bestseller and everything when I was a kid. And it's basically... That's a book his dad wrote. Yeah, and it's basically a, kind of like a business self-help book, but it's full of kind of really funny stories. And um, I realized over time that the people who write self-help books are the people in most need of self-help. 
That's why they're writing them. They're talking to themselves. Absolutely. When right. I was doing that Vine series where I, I did six second screenwriting lessons and I was you know, debunking all the con artists who try to tell you this is what you need to do though. And I was trying to give people the freedom to not worry about what the business thought of them or what someone told them they were supposed to do. And I realized about it, I did it and it got like, it was incredible. I had 60 million views on these things. And I realized like a couple months into it, oh fuck, I'm actually saying all this to remind myself of my own purpose. Yeah. Like, cause I had these rules for it, which were, I was only gonna say something if I knew it to be true and if I thought it would be useful. Those were my rules for these six second little statements that right. I made. And I then came to the realization I needed to hear that shit. Yeah. That's why it was effective. Because you can, you have, the whole thing of being a writer or any kind of anything is you start with the idea that your experience is universal. Like if it's true for me, it's got to be true for That's other Emerson. people. That's Emerson. That's right. Emerson. Right. Right. Um, if you say that secret thought. Yeah. And you give voice to this thing that almost embarrasses you because you believe it. You'll find it strikes off right. other people because they recognize that in themselves. Too. I mean, without that, right. you don't have kind of any writing or any art or anything, any, anything. So you know, people always think they're exceptional, but the big realization is mostly they're not exceptional. To have them change places, they'd each do what the other one did most of the time. There are people, there are outliers, you know, but basically, so I noticed that, you know, a lot of the things my father said, you know, he wouldn't do himself because he was trying to do them. Like from the very basic things where he used to say, don't do never uh, abandon a mature design to gratify a momentary passion. And then you'd see him downstairs at two in the morning eat an entire tub of ice cream. Right. <laughs> no, of course. And, <laughs> and, but there's also throughout your books, I mean, even I think the ones where you're writing about like someone like Jerry and Jerry's voice, there's a kind of yearning for connection. And I guess many writers feel that like they're lonely. It's not loneliness exactly, but it's an awareness of the solitariness of existence. And then this desire like a fascination with people who are able to connect somehow, right? right? Yeah. Um, and then also, you're, it seems you're interested in, and I'm getting to this book, because it seems you're interested in, in people who lead in all different manner of leading and what that means, right? And where yeah. they get the chip on their shoulder and how they exercise that. Yeah. And I, well, I think there was actually a moment where I wanted to become a writer, and it was in college when I read Walker Percy, which I would never, I just stumbled across him. I was... I went to Tulane and I knew the book was well, kind of Of course, set then you're going to read yeah. him in New Orleans. Yeah. And it was like, and even though was I, it the movie goer, the first one? Actually, it wasn't even one Thanatos? of his great books. It was Lancelot. Which I've never read. Which I've only then, read the two. Yeah. And then I went back and read everything else he wrote and everything I could find. But because I was a freshman or I think I was a freshman in college and I picked it up in the bookstore and um, it just said things that I had thought, but I didn't think were sayable. And then once you can actually, this is what you're talking about. Once you can say them, it's like such a relief to know, just to hear him said, it's like making something, like when the uh, eye doctor switches, this more clear, this more clear. When you suddenly see it clear. Oh yeah, man. Yeah. I mean, yeah, those books that do that for you, even though my life is so different than his, and I've never been addicted to anything except pizza, but reading Basketball Diaries. Yeah. At ninth grade. Yeah. Was like a North Star. Right. It was like, okay, there are people who have these certain feelings of a kind of alienation who know they see certain things a certain way and it's hard to articulate that in real time in a way that can, and like reading him and if anyone out there hasn't read Jim Carroll's basketball diaries, it forget the movie, yeah. go, go read that book. So I, I understand yeah. how that would hit you. And it's happened of course to both of us as writers many times where you discover, you know, you see a movie and it's like watching David Mamet for the first time for me. Right. It's like a main line right into your vein. You feel like there's a direct connection and it's like the most exciting thing. And then you read and read and read all the stuff you don't like just searching for that one thing that makes you feel that way. That's my experience. I agree. I agree. Um, all the time you don't, and then you stumble upon it. And then for me, I go read everything usually that the person, right? But I can, you can also read things where you go, that is great. That moved me actually. And, um, but it didn't do that thing you're talking about. Right. Well, it's rare. Like sometimes you just love the language, but maybe it doesn't connect with you or something. Or It's odd because sometimes it's for me very things that are so far from my experience that do it. Like, you know, Murakami is my favorite writer. And Obviously, he and I have lived incredibly different existences, but there's something about his heart that just rings off of my heart. Yeah. It's hard to tell why. Well, your books do this too, man. You know, and uh, for me, it's the, the, the books of yours that are personal. It's the little moments in your books. It's your little, the way you describe your relationship with Larry King, the way you describe King as a sociopath, and, <laughs> that, and just put all that stuff, right. which is incredible. 
um, in the last book. But, but I have to say, in a different way, the, the new book, I, if you're a basketball fan, this book is totally worth reading and getting, and it is exciting and fun and written with all of your mastery of bringing us there. But I found it troubling. And this is what I found troubling, and I just want to ask how it hits you. You know, it's bathed in nostalgia. And one of the great things when you write about your dad is you're writing with a warmth for the events of the past, but you're viewing them with all of the wisdom you have now, and you're actually making these new realizations about how you should live your life now as a 57-year-old or whatever. How old are you? 55. Right, a 55-year-old. I'm 57. <laughs> no, but as a 55-year-old, yeah. yeah. um, because you've realized some lot, like, oh, there were these couple of lies that were really central, and I've kind of like swept them under the rug, but now I have to grapple with what it means for me as a man today who measured myself a certain way. And that gives the book this incredible contemporary power. And I was reading this book, and this book is about why 1987, in Rich's opinion, is the greatest season of the NBA. But uh, it, it strikes me, like I really wrestled with the book because, well, one, I, I don't agree. And two, the reasons I don't agree have to do with this idea that guys like us want to stop time sometimes. Yeah. And want to freeze in amber what it felt like to be in our 20s when we were very vital and we were watching these very vital athletes do something um, when it still felt like the world was full of possibility. And I was struck by this idea that I don't want to look back and declare in amber, well, 1987 was the best basketball season because of how it made me feel. That's like saying REM's the best band that could ever live because I felt a certain way when I would go to the Wang Center in Boston and watch REM. Right. I mean, well, did you think about that at all? Of course. I think I dealt with it in the book. I mean, I write, so there was a quote I kept thinking of that I read a long time ago when I was a kid by E.B. White. And he was talking about H.G. Wells when he was old, wrote, it was the end of the world. You right. Know? And, yeah, and we all write, how, how every generation thinks right. the world's ending. And he wrote, yes. it's a case of mistaken identity. Something's going to end soon, but it's mm -hmm. not the world. But, exactly, right. yes. But, and I agree. And I write about another book and I do accept that maybe that season was the best to me because of my age. At the time. Because of you and your dad in Chicago. Right. I'm missing what it felt like to be 17. And all that's true. I 100% agree. And I was aware of it. But I wrote the book anyway. Okay. So, but to me, that it's the greatest season was kind of a great way to organize a book. I'm aware other people have great seasons because you had these four great teams. And to me, it's like when I write something, I'm looking for something that I think is great material. But even some of it, the way you're, even some of it, I felt, because what I'm interested in this is about character and about your, about our character and being white men in our 50s who've been able to control the world, not us too, obviously, as writers, we don't control anything, but guys like us have been able to sort of have hegemony, right? Right. And um, that, it, and you know, we were young. You, I was 21 that season. You were 17. If I was 21, you were. I was. I'm born in 66. It was 87. I was 21. Yeah. You were 19. Yeah. That season. Yeah. You would have to have been. Yeah. Right. And the future was like boundless. Yeah. No. All true. But here's two things I will say. So I agree with all all that. I know that other people have other seasons and. It, whether or not it's the best season doesn't really matter, actually. I mean, it's interesting. To th it's an interesting thought exercise, and I hope people will disagree and everything. But there's a couple things going on. One is, first of all, I think that some things have changed in the culture. I was just thinking about this walking over. It's like we all got together and built this sort of ecosystem we live in, and nobody really likes it that much, man. It's like you got together, you spent 20 years building a house, and we're like, I hate this house, you know? And I'm walking down the street, and everyone's looking at their phones, smiling, and yeah. I don't know what the hell they're smiling at. Like, their phone is giving them some kind of immediate drug rush, you know? And, I'm, and I got my phone in my hand, too. And I think that one of the things about sports that's, that has changed is you have such immediate, and it's with music, too, such immediate access to every highlight, every play, every game. There's no reason to watch it live. If you miss it, you just go back. You know, so yeah. Connor Bedard scored his first goal in the NHL last night. I watched it a hundred times, you know? So it's already like become faded currency. 
And there was something about living in a world that was, call it like live. You were living live. And Herme- you- it was yeah, hermetic in a way. But yeah. like hermetically sealed in this, we were all living in this, there wasn't, you couldn't look elsewhere. You were, you right. were trapped in and this And if you thing. wanted to watch the Bulls play the Pistons, but- you had to be there watching it when right, it happened. But I guess this is the thing, you're writing in the book about these young dudes trying to buck a system at times. Isaiah, the misunderstandings, Jordan Burt. But it was a league where the players were basically powerless where Billy, the, the, the equivalent of billionaires now controlled so much. And even this point about like um, everyone looking at their phones, it's like um, old guy shit. Right. Well, okay, let me I, put Like, it, what if we're wrong? Like, like, what, like, 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 it's, um, like, I don't know, Holgram and Webham Yama played this, this game two nights ago. Uh-huh. I mean, and uh, I will watch that game. Like, I've, it's taped somewhere. Yeah. I'll watch it. I'm glad I've seen those highlights. It's amazing to me. We can now watch, we can watch Vegas. We didn't used to have the summer league. So we all watched Web as a, as a unit. I think it allowed all of us to have a more communal experience. You know, I would say, what do you think of this point? Right. I feel I had a more communal experience about Victor Webb and Yama's summer league than we would have ever had the chance to have because okay, some people watched it when it happened. But then there were thousands of opinions shared that we all got to engage with. We all got to watch a quarter, you know, the half of the game that he played, however we ended up catching it. And then we've all been waiting for the game the other night and for what's going to happen. And then these two seven foot five dudes who can make, not only can they make threes, they can dribble as well as Isaiah and (laughs) they can cut through the thing and do reverse jams. Right. And I'm watching it and I'm like, well... Not only, not only is it impossible that the earlier level of basketball was, it's like these are titans now. Right. I, well, these are two. They make me think of many different things. These are different yeah, different points. Say. One is players then versus players now. That's like a thing in and what we could talk about that. But that's a separate issue. It's like so. I'm talking about the underlying question. Right. Right. Though. I'm still, I think that like for example, baseball struggling right now. People don't have the patience for it. Okay. So. The thing is about sports, if you really get into them, it's like the same reason you get into reading books or watching movies. There's a narrative. Yes. There's a narrative. Yes. So you feel like you watch a game and it's, you, you can go watch it 10 years later, show your kid the play and it doesn't look very exciting because the only thing that made the play exciting was you sat through an hour and a half of brutality and how, is, how are they going to score and what's going to break this thing open and who's going to, and you get to that moment. And now there's, it's, everything's divided up into these little pieces. And then, back then, because we didn't have so much information, you had to do more with your mind. This is just what I feel. So when I went back to research this I'm, book. Yeah, I'm interested in this. Yeah, yeah, one of the things I did was I watched all the games again, you know, um, and games that stood out in my mind as so exciting. Sometimes they weren't as exciting as I remembered because I knew what was going to happen and I wasn't as invested. But also, I went back and read all the articles, okay? And there were two writers traveling with each team, writing sure. two different stories, a, a story of blow by blow what happened, the beat writer, and then somebody else who'd find an interesting story around Absolutely. the team. So if you're a writer and you're kind of like have a literary sensibility, you're aware that that stuff was being processed as like instant literature at the time. And it was all like kind of literary. So, you know, when you go back and want to really find out what the old Yankees were about, you read like Red Smith or something. And it's like literature. No, right. of course. I'm yeah. a big golf person and like Dan, you know, you read Dan Jennings. On the other hand, I'm really happy to read Bamberger now, right? Mm. And I, like, so baseball, I'm really glad you brought up baseball. I think about baseball a lot, but I think we might come to different conclusions. So my conclusion, so like when, um, when they pulled Kershaw and didn't let him finish the perfect game, it drove me out of my mind a year, year, year ago, right? Right. Uh, it was opening game, second game of the season or opening game of the season. He goes to the seventh and he's perfect. He gets I watched out it, I remember, in the seventh yeah. or something, right? And I'm friends with Joe Posnanski, who I think is the best baseball writer. And I'm going crazy that they fucking pull. I can't fathom it. Because like, growing up, I watched baseball and, and probably like you, I never, ever took my eyes off the hit total. And I I could not move away from a game until I knew there was not going to be a no-hitter. Right. Because we cared about that stuff, understood the historical significance of it. And only a few people have ever done it. And it mattered a tremendous amount. And and if you knew someone was maybe throwing one, your dad would call you, my dad, and and, and I would turn on the game. Holy shit, there's a a David Wells. There's a chance that... Yeah. It was like a big deal, right? And now the modern metrics 
And not and I was furious. And then I found out Kershaw said, it's okay, I want to come out because he was aware of the pitch count because he right. was coming off an injury. And so I was outraged by it, as I'm outraged by the pitch clock, right? But then, so that's my gut reaction is, and but then I realized that I think I have to guard against protesting against modernity and right. protesting against well, that, that, that the game is n- like um, the rules are not for us anymore for your HDL's Wells reason because we're moving in this other direction toward yeah. this other destination and what baseball meant to us because of the way we watched it with our dads and they watched it with their dads and because of having a catch and all the reasons that baseball mattered. And yeah, I'm a little turned off from the game because of all the way it relies on metrics and, and, and the change. And I love reading Roger Angel. Um, uh, What's better than that. Right. But I have to at least consider, I was here with two people yesterday who were both like, Oh, I can finally watch baseball again. Well, I I I couldn't understand it. I want to tell you, I'm not like completely against, modernity or whatever uh, of i mean course. for example i think the pitch clock's good because what happened in baseball is what often happens is that there's some little innovation and it gets like a virus so uh, the first guy i remember stepping out of the batter's box and readjusting every time was nomar garcia para he would get out between every pitch do both gloves, yes. do his socks. Yes, yes. And, and then he was very successful and everybody started doing that, all these hitting cuts. So a game, the, a good game with two pitchers would be like an hour and 45 minutes. Suddenly they're three, four hours long. It's impossible. And when I watched the pitch clock earlier this year, I'm like, oh, this is more like the pace. If you would watch a game in the 80s, it had pace. Sure. And the, so they, it was. I understand Theo Epstein, I think is a genius. And yes. I think he was trying to reestablish return to the pace. So... I don't have a problem with that. My problem is that sometimes they're trying to figure out what's wrong with baseball, like because they're losing viewers and all that. And there's nothing wrong with baseball. There's something wrong with the viewers. I not get that. that. Yeah. No, I get it. There's something wrong with the match. It's almost like it's not. How's this? There's nothing wrong with baseball, and there's nothing wrong with the viewers. They just might not be a match. That's anymore. what I mean. I don't mean there's something wrong with they them. They might I mean just that, not be a match. That game doesn't fit American life anymore because of the speed of American life. You know. It, people don't have the time for it. It's especially hard to consume on your phone. And it's um, especially, it's uh. a game with a lot of boring, a very boring watching a baseball game. And even the way they, so the way they cover golf, you can watch it because they jump from thing to thing. There's always something happening, you know? And in baseball, it's a lot of like, who's going to break? Who's going to give in? So you're It's watch- also that even though announcers in baseball are, are in um, golf are annoying, because those are national events, they are the cream of that crop at telling the narrative. And they've thought about the narrative all week. Uh-huh. And baseball, a lot of times, it's local. I mean, it's not always, but you know, you're getting local announcers sometimes, and right. it's just not. And there, and there are so many games that how can you prep for them? I think a thing that's in all of your books, and again, from the first from Tough Jews, which I think everyone should read right now, your first book that became a sensation. By examining this thing that maybe we weren't looking at a certain way, I feel like you're learning something and we're learning something. It's so what I'd ask you in this is in a way, Bird, Magic, Isaiah, and Jordan have never gone away. Uh-huh. True. They're still, like, like I, sometimes I would get, the only time I've read a book, I would get to a page and you would describe something about Bird. And, and yeah, maybe it is the culture because it's like, well, this is litigated every day it's yeah. like what what was it about this and i guess this is what I'm, I'm trying to get to is it about your dad like what is it about this that was so alive for you what is the new thing you want us to get from examining this 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 season you, you know what what is the sort of like third thing right. at, at play to you about this well first of all i do think that there are certain eras we can call a golden age. Yeah, totally. Without it being because we're totally old guys, agree. Yeah, right? Totally. And I would argue that the NHL, for example, it's a golden age right now. It's the best hockey I've ever seen in my life. Exciting players. Sure, Ali Frazier up through Tyson is the golden age of Bob. Like even right. before that, I mean, you could say, well, that's interesting, right? Because our dads would have absolutely said Joe Lewis, Ezra Charles. They would have absolutely said the Joe Lewis right. era was 
But my dad knew watching Ali Tyson. And my dad knew Ali was too. Yeah, he knew Ali was too. But what was what was the thing missing from Tyson? He didn't have any worthy opponents when he was at his peak, and that is what made this era great to me. Which is you had these four dynasties that made each other great. They they pushed each other. You know, so I grew up in Chicago. Yes. So this is the third thing in Chicago, which is I think the thing that sparked me to write Mm -hmm. about this was there's a friend of mine, a really good guy, TV actor, um, great athlete in high school. And he was just going on about Isaiah and how Isaiah's a crybaby and a whiner, you know. And that's Isaiah Thomas is hated in Chicago. And the, the, because he had this rivalry Not with Jordan. as much as he's hated in New York. Yeah, well, that's, he's hated for a different reason. I'm just talking about as a player. Yes. But when I was first aware of Isaiah, I really liked Isaiah because Isaiah was from Chicago. All of us did, of course. Yeah, and he looked like he was 10 years Even old. New Yorkers did back then. And he was small. And so know, tough. And so tough. With that tough. smile, like yeah. you say in the book. Yeah. yeah. And there was a thing then, even with like Kershaw said, it's right, he should come out of the game because of the pitch count and everything. And, and I understand that's how all this stuff works now. But there's this real sense of, are you going to choose the moment or are you going to choose the career? You know, it's sort of like, because ultimately yes. your career is defined by a series of moments. And when you always choose, it's like being safe in life. Like sometimes it's like the risky business thing. Sometimes you got to say what the fuck. Well, it's like the Bird-McHale argument, right? Are you going to, Bird was like, I'm going to break my back if I have to. Right. And, and McHale's off fishing and it drives Bird insane. Right. right? Yeah. As you mentioned right. in the book. So it's like a life, there's a line, I think I kind of grabbed it. It's from T.S. Eliot, I think. It's like a lifetime burning in every moment. The whole career in the moment. You know, so every now and then you have to just say, fuck my career. I mean, this is the moment. This is my career. And I think that those guys really did that then. And one of the reasons they did it is they had this, because the basketball season is very long and a lot of teams make the playoffs and it's devalued. And sometimes you feel like you wait for the playoffs or a couple weeks before the playoffs, which become like a massive tournament, like the greatest tournament of all time, but it's like a tournament. So, I mean, think about the way pro sports started in this country with teams. It was baseball. And um, they just played the whole season and somebody was the winner by who won the most games. And then they, you know, and now it's like a tournament. It's like a tournament. So right, it was just winning the pennant then, right? Right, Which just was- winning the pennant, whoever had the best record and a team that's built for length. So that's the other weird thing about pro sports now, which is the game played in the postseason is a very different than the game played in the regular season. And that's kind of what Jordan had to figure out. You see teams have to figure it out all the time. Remember a bunch of years ago, the Texas Rangers were great. And the Yankees would play him every year in the playoffs. And all their hitters that hit like 50 home runs, they were just shut down because they were feasting on pitchers that would never pitch in the playoffs. Or guy, you know, they would, in the playoffs, you don't see a bad pitch, especially now. If a guy looks a little weak, they pull him out. You know, and I think the, the effort of making guys go at least three batters, that rule, um, is a combination of things. One is, let's let him throw a couple bad pitches. You know, that's when, that's as opposed to every game is a collective well, yeah, like that. Uh, I mean, no, of course, the specialization and all. I mean, that that pitcher who yeah. I forget which guy it is the the guy who refused to come in and pitch the four outs in the fucking game that would have gotten them into the playoffs. Yeah. I mean, a, a month ago. Yeah, it's insane. Yeah, I mean, our generation couldn't understand. It. I just realized though what the issue. I just it just hit me, which is I guess if if you're not looking a hundred years back, you're looking thirty years back, and you're saying so basketball is so important to me, right? My dad uh, was a phys ed teacher first. Basketball was his life. His most important sport, he was a great shooter. I grew up, my sanity that, you know, I meditate now, I have all these things that I, my sanity as a kid was only ever standing in the driveway and shooting alone. School was really hard. What I had was a really, really beautiful shot. Right. And I, it became that because every fucking day, man, and it was what saved me all the time, right? The other books, music, all those things, but the physical thing, the thing when I was alone and I didn't want to read, I didn't want to think, I wanted to get to that other place. I was just standing and even on cold days yeah, and shooting up. This is what basketball means. My dad would sometimes come home, I've written about it, but my dad would come home and I have this such a keen memory of him coming home like your dad, but my dad in a suit and I'd be in the driveway and, and it, I can keenly remember when I was young, 11, 10, him still in whatever he wore to work, coming out of the car and just putting his hands out and me throwing the ball to him and then him making a shot on his way inside to right. say hi to my mom, right? So like you, basketball is very centered around my father and me. My very first memory is my dad taking me to Madison Square Garden to see Earl Pearl play against the Knicks. That's the first memory that I have. Right. And still yet, 
and I, me and I, my son and I have basketball too. Like we've gone to Nick games since he was four, four years old, three years old. But if you're saying the best that it ever was, was 30 years ago, you're kind of saying that's the best it can be in a way. I don't think so. I'm, I'm not because s- they're saying all these things about the, the way it's changed. Right. Because if the players are, um, yes, of course, I would make the argument Jordan's the best who ever played the game even now, but I would never make the argument that the level of play in 1987 was close to the no, level of No, no, the of level play of play now. of all sports is lower, and especially the players at the bottom, second half of That's the roster. That's what I'm saying. You take away right. those first 20 dudes. Right. And everybody else was, right. Chris Ford wouldn't be, you know, tie, leading the lead in three-pointers right. now. Well, I definitely look for little... No offense, Chris. No, I, what I always look for is things you, could, things you think you've seen a million times, but there's a different way to see them, which is like if you read something great about a movie that you know, but you never thought of it before, you want to go watch the movie again and you enjoy it again as if for the first time. That's something like I try to do in my writing. So that, like with this, like a little example, because you were talking about shooting outside in the winter or in the cold. So Chicago, as you know, is very windy, very cold. There were, the All-Star Game in 1988 was in Chicago at Chicago Stadium. There's a park, a couple, maybe a mile from yeah. Chicago Stadium, where four players on that All-Star team grew up playing in that park. And they all had a similar style, which was a Chicago style. And the reason why they played that way is because they played outside in the winter when, it was, when the wind was blowing and it was freezing cold and you couldn't shoot from outside because any shot from the outside would be blown off course and you had to play defense and you had to play right under the basket to make sure the ball yeah. went in. So that's like a thing you have to, it's there, but it makes you really understand how they're playing in a different way. And my father always was, like a coach was saying, watch how he always goes to, he's making him go to yes, his right. He's yes. making him go to his right. Like he doesn't want to go to his right. He has to go to his right. And... You see, like, even a guy like Larry Bird, in the middle of his career, decide, I, my left hand has to be a well, lot that's better. that's amazing, yes. Yeah, so... And, and then Bird does the game where he scores the 47 with his left hand. And says yes. he's saving his right hand for the, uh, for the Lakers. It's great. That's a great moment yeah. in your book, too. Yeah. But even though that's a moment, obviously... I mean, that's the challenge with this, right? Is that that moment is now... I mean, I've, I, I think we've... I've watched that moment on TikTok, honestly, a hundred times right. this year. Because it comes back... It, but it but the, thing, uh, the thing I think is that I realized about the season that made it interesting for me. Yes, the book is fast. I'm yeah. not saying the book's not fascinating. No, but made the subject interesting was, so like it I is. said, I grew up in Chicago. We hated the Pistons. Yes. We hated Bill Lambeer. I saw Bill Lambeer once. Fuck Bill Lambeer. Yeah, and I, I, I told you, I, I, was a, I was an intern on Capitol Hill, and I saw him walking with the Pistons. I love this. Yeah. 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 And he, I was like in my khakis or whatever, you know, carrying a folder across the thing and the Pistons were all in suits going to meet John Dingle who was their congressman and I saw Lambeer and I thought I'm going to go take a swing at Lambeer I'm going to be a hero in Chicago for the rest of my life and um but the thing is like when you got in when you really get into it and I I didn't really realize this until I started researching this book is like why were the Pistons the way that they were well they were that way because their object when when Isaiah started coming up wasn't to beat to win the finals their object was to beat the Pistons and the Pistons had the biggest front line in the NBA and an all Hall of Fame front line. And to beat them, you had to be bigger and tougher. And they did it by basically having almost two starting teams, which stressed the Pistons starters, made them play more than they wanted. And we were like, why did the, I mean, to beat the Celtics? And why were the Celtics the way they played? Because they had to get by the 76ers. And for the, any Bulls fan knows that it was not a one season thing with the Bulls. It was four years of being beaten up by the Detroit Pistons and when people always say they hate Isaiah, they hate this, I go, look, the most hated guy when I was a kid was Rodman. Rodman was the guy who threw Scottie Pippen into a stanchion. Uh, oh, it's fine. In New York, I think, Lambeer was more hated. Yeah. Lambeer was the most hated here, for sure. Lambeer was hated, but Rodman actually, if you go back, he threw Pippen like into I, yeah, a pole. Yeah, of course. I mean, you know, I mean, we hated Alonzo Mourning, too, yeah. for that fight. Yeah, of course. Right, I love but those then grudges. Rodman ends up yeah. on the Bulls in the uh, second course. iteration, and he's the most loved guy in the Bulls. Yes. And John Sally, who'd been hated, ends up on the Bulls. So you realize that you're, you don't like the guy until he ends up in your team. And you also realize that if Isaiah had played on a different team with a different goal, he would have played differently. Well, yeah, that's when, I mean, when Clemens came here. Yeah. It was like when Clemens came to New York. Yeah. And suddenly, yeah. You, literally, you know, he was the most, I mean, he was so beloved here and he was despised. I remember, yeah. Right? And, and then he's despised. the guy that they, well, they sided with him over Mike Piazza. Basically. Yeah. And he was despised. <laughs> right. You know. So my point is I saw sort of the way... I, I was a history major in college, and yes. it was very much the way history develops, which is 
a country becomes what it becomes in response to whatever local threat it has. Oh, yeah, that totally works. Of course, the, yeah. the Pistons had their power and then... The, 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 and with that era, I don't think they're the best teams. I don't think they're the best players. So I agree I think that Jordan was the best, not only the best player, because I grew up at that age. I think he's the best athlete I've ever seen, you know, and other people might. I just never saw an athlete that uh, he did things that were unbelievable. So both mentally and physically. Yeah, I mean, I think it's funny because I can't stand this guy. But I think and um, tennis is my number one thing in a way. Um you know, Joker is probably the best athlete. Yeah. Of, I, I, I a lot mean, of people say Bo Jackson. I, yeah, say well, Bo obviously Jackson. Bo or Dion. Right. Um, but then, you know, look, Dan, I, you know, there are guys, like Danny Ainge played two sports. Um, Danny Ainge played three sports. Dave Winfield was an all-time yeah. great. He could have played the three sports too. He was yeah. fully could have. They wouldn't let you back then. Well, there's there Jim like Thorpe who played of, pro of baseball course. and wasn't even a sport. Of I course. Mean. But but um, I, I think, um, it's funny, I think Joker... I think Djokovic is just so astonishingly great, and tennis makes you combine all those things. Tigers, but there's something you, you can make the about the team sport because there's the leadership element which Jordan but had. But you know who always gets forgotten in this conversation is Reggie Jackson because Reggie yeah. Jackson started for USC at quarterback. Yeah, right. He was a quarterback, and then he was, I think, a high school um, All-American, best quarterback. Maybe when he got to USC, they didn't let him play quarterback. He played another, but he was broke his neck in college as a football player. And that's why one of the reasons he couldn't play in the NFL. But he, Reggie was like an all-time great yeah. um, athlete, too. And I in think. baseball, you don't see the athleticism all the time. You just see it in that's glimpses. A great point. That's yeah. a great point. In basketball, you see it all the time. The question is like, um, it goes back to this... this uh, this idea, which I think is from a thesis standpoint, and it's, look, it's why your book is worth reading because what's more fun than reading a sports book and arguing with it? I mean, that's the whole point of a sports book in a way is to engage, if it engages you yeah. emotionally, it, and it's one. And of course, the players I interviewed and the coaches were from that era. So they said, yeah, that was the best era. I mean, Danny H said that was the best era. It's no, no, of course it's in the, it's a, in the conversation. But to me, it's like when my father used to talk about New York baseball when he was a kid, he talked about Duke, Duke Snyder, Snyder might, of course. Yeah. yeah, of course. Mickey Mantle, and, and Joe, there was an overlap with Joe DiMaggio, and um, Ted Williams was in the league, and who is the third? Oh, Willie well, Mays. Willie Mays. Yeah, so it's like I accepted, without ever having seen it, just based on what I read and based on what I knew, and looking at the statistics. I wrote down Duke Snyder to bring up to you today because my dad, the same thing. I literally yeah. was on, I wrote it down to say, like, in a way, though, 2016. 2016. LeBron goes back to Cleveland to slay the Warriors. And that is, narratively, as huge and And, you know, if Scott Rabb were sitting here with us, I bet you he would say that's the best season right. Yeah, I mean, there's no time. doubt. I'm, I'm writing about when I was a kid and consuming Because he's a Cleveland sports. guy, Scott yeah. Rabb. I know you know that. I'm, yeah. yeah, and I was yeah. so into sports. Like, it seemed so important. Me too, I yes. remember even when I came, when the... Yes. I remember when I came, when the... I think when the Bulls won one year, the Knicks were out. I was living on 11th Street, and I came out of my apartment like, woo! And, like, nobody was doing anything in the street. It was, like, the strangest thing. I expected, like, you know, like V-Day. That's hilarious. You know, but nobody cared, so. Like, which year, 89 or something like that? or Yeah. No, no, like, like 92. Right. Like, the second That's year. That's because I was living on, on 12th Street then. Yeah. And you were living on 11th Street. That's funny. I'm sure we ran into each other. But, like, you know, we were Knicks fanatics here. And, I, I, yeah, I was in my Knicks colors for months yeah. on end back then it was like well Fuck i was talking to a friend um i was i was criticizing this is a bunch of years ago but i was criticizing about how uh these fans are so fanatics they dress up they paint their face and my friend greg spitzer goes rich you did have that giant bears <laughs> i was like oh yeah i forgot you know i was such a fanatical bears fan and I have a friend who's. Would you have a giant bears? I had like a, one a giant finger and a helmet and right, a McMahon jersey. Right? Yeah, and your... I was going to the game like with skull because that's the McMahon shoe. Yeah, you know, yeah, that's awesome. And um, anyway, so and but I so definitely yes, a hundred percent. That's like uh, baked into it, which is it's when you're a kid and when you get older, other stuff happens, and it's not only other stuff in life happens that you see. Things that seemed astonishing, like they could never happen again. You see them happen again and again and again. Good. Yeah. You know, and this you don't, is the question: Can yeah. you lose yourself? So, a friend of mine said this to me, and I didn't re realize it till my, a friend of mine, a great writer, one of the greatest writers, was talking to me once, and he said, 
that it got harder when he got into his 50s. He's 15 years older than I am. And he said, you know, fiction became harder to read, serious fiction, because... And he kind of trailed off, but I, I realized what he meant was like this. At our age, you're aware of impermanence, and great fiction deals with impermanence, right? right? That's what it deals with, ultimately. And uh, is impermanence, right? Our, uh, everything you love will be taken away. As my friend Slade Cleaves wrote in a song once. And um, investing in a sports team when we're 20 is yeah. very easy. It's very natural to right. sort of be able to like take that ride. And I wonder, is it just harder to take the full ride because you're aware of the disappointment? You're aware that if you invest yourself, you're probably going to end up giving yourself some days of pain. And at our age, you might not see the turn. Right. Like Tiger winning, right? Yeah. No, it's like when I was a kid, I wrote about this in my Cubs book. It's like I became a Cubs fan and my father's like, don't do that. Don't become a Cubs fan. He's like, you will have a bad life. You know, you will, you will accept losing as the natural. Do not become a Cubs. And I, of course, became a big Cubs fan. And they won the World Series in 2016. But it was great. But if they'd won in 1984, when they went and they lost three straight games to the San Diego Padres and Steve Garvey hit this home run that broke our heart. I mean, I went outside and cried. And it's like you can never really have your heart broken by a team in that way again. But I still have this experience even now. Like I'll be watching a hockey game for a team I really love. Like the, I really like the Rangers. And they'll be in the playoffs and they'll lose like double overtime. So I've been watching for like five hours. And I think what other kind of entertainment would you take the chance of spending your entire night? And at the end of it might be like someone kicks you in the face and you can't go to sleep. Yeah, but this is it, right? I don't want to think that the best thing was this thing when I was 21, right? Well, because there's something. I'm saying it's, yeah. that's what I think is like, in a way... This is a deep thing in the book, right? This, this, it's as as mortal as like you're aware of mortality, you're aware of impermanence. But you also have great. See, one of the things I love in sports most is all the little, and it's the kind of things that happen in life, but you don't see it, which is all the little displays of character. You oh, know? for sure. So, like for example, there's nothing more when you watch a guy. Like I came across something I didn't know because the big basket, big bull star, when I was a kid, was Artis Gilmore. Who'd yep. been, you know, I got to shake his hand once in an airport. Oh, unbelievable. Yeah. Well, there's so Artis Gilmore was on the Bulls that year, which you don't even the remember. Strongest, he's, he, people would say he was the strongest guy ever in the NBA. Yeah. And ultimate. So I'll tell you. So he was on the Bulls that year. He came, he'd gone away, came back. And people never, like it seemed when you think about historical eras, you don't think Jordan and Artis Gilmore played together. It yeah. seems like a completely different yes. era. And because he played on the Bulls with like Reggie Theus, and it's like a whole other, whole other era. It's like a bad era. He was, and, and, um, he was on the Bulls, and the Bulls cut him in the middle of the season, and they cut him in New York. And there's just a scene I came across where he's out on right across from Madison Square Garden. They told him basically leave, and he's sitting there in his big fur coat, which he famously wore, yes. trying to hail a cab to like leave, it's great. going the rest of his life. And then he, and that's like sports. And then he gets signed by the Celtics, and the reason they sign him is just for his physical presence and strength. And this goes back to what you said, which is I think was Casey Jones said. Somebody said, why did you sign Artis Gilmore? He's like, and he said, have you ever shaken Artis Gilmore's hand? When he shakes your hand, you think you're going to die. Yeah. I got to <laughs> shake his hand once. Yeah. And I, he was gentle, but I was aware, you know, you were all aware of it then. No, and of course, like, I mean, you said Steve Garvey just now. And those players are seared into our brains. I mean, you said, you said his name, and I immediately thought of Ron Say. Right. And then Lopez. And right. I immediately could start naming all those. I know the, that whole team. Of course I you was, do. Yeah. I know that I could name the Reds team. I could name Don Gullett, starting pitcher, bench row. I could name every one of those Bert guys Hooten. on that team. Like on the Reds team. Right? Oh, I could, on the Reds. I'm saying I could go yeah, right yeah. to the Reds and name that whole era yeah, well, that of, was a, of Well, but see, players. that's the thing, too, that I think is different. Tell me. That we can admit that it's different without being old guys, which is, and it's to the players' benefit and credit that they're much freer to move around and everything else, but you don't have this thing. Now they talk about a core, right. keeping together a core for a few years. So you have this window and you build pieces around them. Those teams were together for 10 years or something. So you would watch them. They would grow up. If you grew up from age, like even the Bulls, age 10, whatever. Jordan came, I think like in 84. I argue with this though, because Wennington and Luke Longley and Cartwright, like you three centers. Right. 
I mean, you're no, three no, different but, centers, but that's still though, the right? But, but you, but it was insignificant that Jordan was there for my whole. And, Absolutely, and, and also, Steph Curry. I mean, like you know, right? I, I that yeah, I, I think. And the other thing about Jordan that was really cool back here thing is, he went off to play baseball and he came back and he was great, but he wasn't the same player. Yes, he didn't play. Didn't have the physical skills he'd had when he left, and he didn't play inside like the way he left. And he changed his game, Absolutely. which is he became a much better outside shooter. So they had to come up and cover him, and then he could go around and make inside plays. It's like he figured out how to play an old guy's basketball game. Yes, and I agree that sports give us this thing, and this is this great thing about writing about this stuff and thinking about it. You know, when Tiger won the Masters in um, um, in twenty eighteen, it was as incredible and moving and beautiful a thing, despite whatever Tiger's shortcomings might be as a human being, you know, no one- That was when he played like on one leg? When he came back, when, yeah. he, when he came back, the one leg was like Rocco Mediate when he beat him in the, in, the, in the playoff, but no, I'm saying, when he won the Masters again, you know, oh, after yeah, yeah, the yeah. whole yeah. thing, and you know, he was injured, he was all fucked up, everything had happened, the car, the, the car on the side of the road, the cops right. finding him, everything. I was able to watch that with my son and call my father on the phone and it was and then all of us were on FaceTime together when Tiger made the final yeah. putt and there was this continuum of something right. going on it was an incredible thing because he first wins in 97 and now we're 19 years later yeah or whatever, yeah and well so one of the one of the hugely a, influential a, a, things for me in all my writing was that John Updike thing about Ted Williams where uh. he yeah, and he talks about with New York. Yeah, yeah, the last he he Updike just happened to go to a Red Sox game at Fenway. It happened to be Ted Williams' last professional game, and he hit a home run at his last at bat, and he refused to come out of the dugout and tip his hat because he hated the Boston fans so much because they'd spit on him when he was like a rookie or whatever. But um, it's such such a beautiful like essay about baseball. But he writes that Ted Williams was probably the best old hitter in the history of baseball, which is something you don't really think about. And then you get this idea that. Athletes are like artists, like some artists have a great old period and it's different than their young period. And you kind of, it gives you hope that as you get I love old, this. Yeah. yeah, you could do something great. So you think of like whoever, whatever artists you happen to like that had a great old period there and musicians that came back and made their best record and writers like Saul Bellow coming back from his deathbed to write the book Ravelstein or what it, Philip Roth writing those books at the end of his Insane. life. Insane, yeah, incredible. Yeah, so, and there's something about that with sports that Tiger coming back after all that happened and still finding a way to win another major, you know, and- Yeah, um, Philip Roth writing the book about the, the sweet American pastoral yeah. In his 60s or whatever, yeah. right? Or Maybe Bob even his Dylan 70s. With those late or every run. man in his 70s? Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. So, and that's something that, and I really was aware because of Updike, I think, because he was really talking about, because he was older and he was looking yes. at Ted Williams as an old player, finding a way to do what he, a way to really contribute, even though he didn't have all the athletic skills. So he lost some of his athletic skills, but he, in return, he'd gotten this incredible knowledge, you know? Is your dad, and even when, you know, he's got, is, is, are you writing, when you write this kind of thing, is that still kind of your audience? Well, actually, I will say, because you're, you're talking about, like, the reason for this, and is it, and I keep thinking of this, it's going to sound nuts, but I keep thinking of this Jonathan Richmond song. You ever hear? Yeah, I love Jonathan You know Richmond. the Ice Cream song? I don't know if I'll song. know the song. I'm not sure. He's got this song. He just sings the Ice Cream Man song, like a song we've all heard as a kid. Oh, yeah. And it, it he's just singing the lyrics, and he keeps stopping. And it's over. And then he goes, one more time. Right. Yeah, he does yeah. it like 20 times. And if you play it and you have little kids, they die laughing. Is that on a Modern Lovers record? Or? No, I think it's on a solo okay. record. Yeah. It's a live album. Okay. But in the middle of that song, he breaks out of the lyrics and the character and he just yells into the microphone, I'm singing about something I really love. Oh, that's awesome. You know, and that's how I feel about the, the, what connects all my books is I'm singing about something I really love. Absolutely. And that's so like, you know, I have to kind of make up a reason to write about this, what I love, which is what I love is this intense sports experience that I had with my father. Absolutely. You know, because my father, he grew up with this idea like you're going to when you play basketball with him, like your father, he'd come home from the airport, get out of his town car that drove him home. O'Hare Midway town car service and we'd be in the driveway playing basketball and he would get out in his suit take off his jacket and we'd play him and he'd be in loafers so yeah right right yeah so for me one of the main sounds of basketball oh. like people say the sound of the ball the sound of sneakers I love this. for me one of the main sounds of basketball is 
coin jingling in an old man's pocket uh, as he goes Rich, around. That is an amazing writer. That's an amazing <laughs> detail. Yeah, man. Yeah. Yeah. And but if you would go over him, he would push you into the so, garage and you'd end the play in a heap, like laughing. Like and when he'd play my brother, man, he would just because my brother was more into basketball than me, but I'd watch. And he would just basically, it was like the great Santini. He would taunt my brother. He'd say, Come on, Bull, come on, Bull. And my brother would go, Berserk. And when it came around to the Pistons, you saw them doing. And that's what he recognized. Well, he yeah, recognized the Pistons would have thrown the ball against the back of your head like Santini. Right. For sure they would, right? Yeah. But um, Squirt a couple. That's what he the, says. The, the sound, right, squirt a couple. Yeah. <laughs> with the ball against the head. Yeah. But Pat Conroy, dude. I mean, come on. I'm a, we're the right age. Yeah. I read all those books. They were my favorite, right? <laughs> I mean, they were just my yeah. favorite books. Lord's Discipline, that one, even like the memoir on Puget's. I loved his books. But the sound thing just made me, it's great. Your eye and ear is so awesome. So on that... We lived in Westbury, Long Island, until I was 11, and then we moved. But in Westbury, the guy across the street from me is where we would all play um, a lot of the time, three on three. Um, because, but my, my court, where my dad would, uh, when he would come to think, had a chain. Yeah, we had that Our too. Our net was chained. I was just talking about this yesterday. And it sounded like a splash. It's this, the yeah. sound of that swish is so yeah. different. And I grew up with that ch- ch- yeah. sound of the chain. We had that chain. too. No, but that doesn't, does it, I don't. I know it's the greatest thing because the net would stay and be there, and, and it, it was just if it was outside all winter and whatever, and they wanted to put something that wasn't going to corrode, you know. Yeah, that wasn't going to get um um whatever it was. Yeah. But that chain net was this amazing sound of the seventies on a yeah. basket on our basketball court. Yeah, um, and it's funny because you said your first memory was going to a Knicks game. So yeah, it one is of my, for sure. Maybe my first memory is my cousins lived in Westbury, and my father had gone out when he was like. 40 years old or 45 to play basketball with his nephews in this park right by their house. Christopher Morley Park probably out there or something. And they were all like 18 years old. And my mom says, cursing my father, I think, don't go, you're going to hurt yourself. Okay. And he ruptured his Achilles tendon, but he refused to admit it. So he walked on it for almost a month. And the result was he had to have like this serious surgery where they pulled it all the way back down. This one, I was like three, four years old. And then he was in a wheelchair for half a year. And one of my first memories is him dribbling a ball in the wheelchair in the driveway, like one of those guys from one of those Vietnam movies, you know, and shooting and not making it to the basket and the ball coming down and hit me right on top of the head. I mean, no, that's, this is why sports, no, but these memories, the way, because it's a way that it's a way that fathers and sons could communicate. And I, so I do think it's fascinating that after you wrote this book, kind of revealing your dad for who he really was, like you really take, you're amazing. One of the amazing skills you have is this ability. You have a very cold, clear eye, but when you want to, you can really romanticize something. You can you can show the way we look at something and see it as larger than life. It's an incredible, like throughout all your, you know, you can, you have the ability to do that. And then you have the ability to pull that away and reveal what's there, right? So it's interesting that you reveal your dad's darkest secrets in the one book. And then almost like a gift, you, you write this book about this amazing sports thing that you guys shared together. And I know it's very interesting yeah. uh, psychologically to me. That that I mean, I remember another you, thing I was talking about. That's the next book you wrote after the one. Right. Well, also, you funny because I, I just was back in my hometown yesterday reading this book at a, books, a local bookstore that it, owned by the same people that I would go into the bookstore and I'd be told I was buying books that were inappropriate for my age. It was like I had a constant fight. Now they're hosting me with, in the bookstore. So um, uh, I remember when I was a kid, I really wanted to pitch because uh, Sandy Koufax, my father grew up with Sandy Koufax. I'd hear these stories about him. And mostly about what a great base basketball player he was. And um, of course, yeah, of course. And right. he practiced with me for a week to go for the tryouts for my father. Like pitching, pitching. And we went out for the tryouts and we'd like gotten the measurement wrong. We were, I was pitching from like whatever. The wrong mound. Yeah. And I went out and all my pitches were landing like 10 feet short of the plate. And my father turned to me and goes, have you considered second base? That's awesome. <laughs> I mean, no, that's the, I mean, that's just, <laughs> that's just um, spectacular. Do you watch basketball now? I do. I mean, not as much as I did then, but yeah, I do. I really kind of got, in the last few years, I've been not just basketball, but I'm really into college sports, basketball and football. Yeah, women's college basketball. I watched like so many games last year. I got into the Caitlin Clark thing right before she became, right before the tournament. Yeah. Because I started noticing. See, this is where I think I like the social media thing. Because around right. her third game of last year, so that's late for people who are really watching. I, I was... um. I watched a ton of women's basketball when Pat Summit was in her prime as a coach and Shamiqua Holtzclaw was on her team. I watched a ton of that team of um, Tennessee because I, I loved um, Pat Summit and I loved Shamiqua 
Holtz Cup. But then, I, I don't know, didn't like drag me back in it. But around Caitlin's second or third game of this season, last season, um, I started seeing her playing, and it was like, this woman's playing like Steph Curry. What the yeah. fuck is going on? So I started tuning into their games and getting the highlights because I saw it on social media, and I got super into it. And then I became like such a giant fan of that team for the year. I watched like well, that's a great thing so about, many I mean, games. Yeah. And then follow, so I was so into it. By the time this tournament came, I was telling people like, you don't understand what's about to happen. The whole country's going to be talking about this woman playing college basketball. Yeah. And it was a blast. And like, I don't know, that was a pretty incredible season. Yeah. No, there's something, I mean, I remember my first real basketball experience in basketball was watching a high school game. Oh, really? At Nutrier High School in Atka, Illinois. And then I spoke to Isaiah, and Isaiah went and played there. And we'd gone to see Isaiah play right. there. yeah. You know, so Isaiah as a high school player. When you spend time with Isaiah, do you feel like you're getting conned, or do you not feel like you're getting conned? No, I feel like Isaiah feels sorry for himself, you know, and he feels like... Um, you know, and I understand it because they had to find a way to win and they had to find an identity in Detroit. Uh, oh, and even going back further, as you articulate in the book and for people who don't know, like everyone has a rough childhood. I, what Isaiah got through and the stories Isaiah can tell about really believing yeah. people had weapons. And that's like Isaiah to, to, have, to have come up with that personality. It's an incredible thing. Now, at a certain point, everybody has an obligation to become the, better, the best human that they right. can. But, but uh, of course he came through a very difficult time. Yeah. Right. And but, also I think that the guys who play at that level, almost of them, they have, they're a little nasty. They have a killer instinct. That's what makes them great. If you don't get one without the other, except for maybe magic Johnson, I never found, but you know, so like Jordan, when we grew up with Jordan was very good at a public image, you know, it's, I want to be like Mike. And then he was in that movie where he, with the cartoon and like, he was almost like a cartoon character, you know? And then when you saw him inducted into the hall of fame, you realize, Oh, Michael Jordan's got a real serious chip on his shoulder. He's pissed off and he's not such a nice guy. You know, when he's trashing guys he went to high school with because they made the team in high school and he didn't. So you realize that one thing Isaiah is very bad at is hiding. You know, like he couldn't keep his mouth shut and he said stupid stuff. So one of the things he was truly hated for at first was his thing about if Larry Bird was black, he'd be just another player. So, and you do a great job of really talking about that moment in, right. the, in the book. Right, because it's important because it gets to this thing in basketball, you know, race, racial thing in basketball. And, but the thing is, I don't think Isaiah really believed that. You know, I mean, it's like something about an interviewer, like if an interviewer is going to write about sports, should have played sports because it's like, you don't interview somebody right after they lost, you know, and they've been humiliated and embarrassed by Larry Bird. It wasn't like Larry Bird beat them basically with a Vulcan mind trick at the end of that. This is at the end of the 1987 season where Bird faked one way and he got Isaiah somehow to throw the ball right to him. And he, you know, uh, dished it off and they, to Dennis Johnson. Dennis Johnson, yeah, of course. In the like bang, bang play. And then you interview him right after that and he's pissed, man, and he's embarrassed. And after that, he gets on the phone with Magic Johnson and he cries. I, I loved this thing in the book um, where you talk about because I actually, this, I've never heard anybody take the time to say, by the way, it's Dennis Johnson's intelligence as a basketball player was equally as important yeah. in that moment as Bird's. And they and read each other. He, he knew exactly if he didn't take doing, off. Right. If he didn't take, and I thought the way you talked about that was um, fantastic. And, you know, uh, I think that a book that gets the reader as kind of, thinking about things like mortality and impermanence and what does it mean for a guy my age who I respect and like to say this is basically as good as it can get right is a really it's a really <laughs> excellent thing to to have done I mean, and I, I I remain um I, I see this quite differently than you do and I I feel like the next season is probably the best season ever and I'm not interested in deciding that that's the best season right ever. well I will so to some extent you know it's a point of departure right it's like a way to talk about this and it's a frame yes and um it organizes the whole book and the way yes. i thought of it as game of thrones on because i'd written a book about the 85 bears these are all teams i cared about when i was a kid so it's not like i'm coming in to learn about them like a journal i'm writing about them like a memoir and then about the cubs and the cubs history and so I didn't want to write a book just about the Bulls because I sort of had this idea. I'm going to write about where the Bulls come from. And my son was watching Game of Thrones again, which I'd watched when it came out. And, um, and I just felt like this is like Game of Thrones because on the hard court, because you don't know 
when you're watching this season, you don't know who ultimately is going to be the winner in the long run. Like it's going to be somebody totally different than you think. It's to my point of view, it's the Bulls who win six and eight years. You know, that's going to be the great team of the era um, with the greatest player of all time. But in 87, 88, you can't tell who that's going to be. You don't know. And the Pistons came very close to winning three in a row, which would have changed their whole reputation. But I will say like, my kids, I watch a lot more sports than my kids. They have a lot more options. We had video games. They weren't that good, man. Right. They just weren't no, they that sucked. good. They sucked. Like I walked in the other day, my son was playing soccer video game. I just thought he was watching soccer. Of it's course. Exact, it's totally different. Right, it's totally different. So we didn't have games like that. And there was all these things pulling it. But my son plays hockey and he's very into hockey and he brings new players to me you know you got to see this guy you got to yes. see that guy and he's like this guy's playing he's in juniors and he's playing in canada and he came from europe and he's incredible and i'll watch him like oh yeah and i and i'm replenished in a way i'm not exactly replenished with basketball because i don't have a kid doing that you know what i mean i do yeah My, I, I know i get it uh I look at like Zion if he's healthy and Victor Webbenyama and Chet Holmgren like the other day and I think See Chet and, Holmgren I totally and, yeah I watched him play all through college and I and I saw I high this, school I mean I watched a lot of his Yeah uh, and I thought yeah this is going to be one of the best players of all time when when I was watching him then so and you see the players it was I think back then it was just the concentration of players and the fact that you'd go through these long periods of time where you couldn't see or hear about him so you'd imagine him Yes. You know, like I'm a big believer, like in the idea of modern art, which but, uh, is incomplete. Course. So you have to the viewer it creates. Yeah, I'd say. Yeah, I was watching, like, you know, all these journalists who didn't want to give um, Jokic credit last year before the, the, the he, he won. And because they had this old idea of what it meant to be an athlete or great at a sport and they couldn't look at someone like him and say, oh, yeah, that's a great athlete. And um, but now, you know, you see Wembenyama, Holmgren, Zion, if he's healthy. And I think. I'm really excited for the people who were 17 and the sort of nostalgic memoir they're going to write about this yeah. era then. And maybe you and I'll be a couple of Alta Cockers still here kicking around, yeah. getting to read those books. But like, so last, I keep bringing it up because my son's playing hockey. I was watching. Of course, bring your, oh, you're talking about your dad and you in sports. Yeah, bring your son Yeah, I'm talking about Connor up. Bedard, it who we watched play. Right, though, and, yeah. like, and if you're into hockey, they play differently than they played back then. So like when I go back watch an old clip of Mark Messier, that's how I skated. I mean, not as good as him, but I played hockey and that's how I skated. The guys who skate now skate what look to me like figure skaters. I used to say to them, and they teach them like they have figure skaters teach them when they're kids. I'd say to my son, listen, if I saw you on the ice when I was a kid, I would have just gone over and knocked you down just based on principles, man. You're skating like a figure skater. Looks like you're going to take off into a triple axle. Like that's the way hilarious. I'm so, so hockey's <laughs> the sport I know the least well, well. So you see him, the guy last night, and it's like you see him, he scores. Uh, Connor Bedard, yeah. he looks like he's 10 years old. He's small. Yes. He's so skilled. Every time he, he's out there, it's like young Michael Jordan. He has a puck on his stick. The puck just seems to come to him like a magnet. Right. And then between periods, they have Wayne Gretzky talking about what's so great about him. I mean, how great is that? It's perfect. Like reenacting, showing you what he's doing, showing you why it's different, you know, why he's It's gonna... perfect. Maybe I'll yeah. get, maybe this year I'll start watching. What team does he plays on the, the Blackhawks? Black yeah, yeah. I, I'm going to watch Blackhawk game or two. I mean, I hear, you know, um, Will Bond talk about it sometimes, but... Um, it's interesting. Like I've recently, and we can end this now, but this ties in. This is why your book is really fascinating because it makes you think about all this. So I watch PTI almost every night of my life before bed. Like it's the last thing um, after Amy and I say goodnight. She like <laughs> close her eye, put on, I watch PTI. And, uh, but lately I've been watching First Take instead. I've been watching Nick Wright because those guys even are in the past and there's something where Nick Wright's 38 and he's the new one of those guys and I'm interested in his right his take I'm interested in looking forward but yes and like you I have a historical obviously other than the hockey guys every player you mentioned like you could do when I do I could name everything about them right, right. we they live they're very alive to me but I'm still so engaged in watching what's going to happen right. next but think about think about something that's really cool which is a guy like Kareem Yes. Played with guys like Kuzi or whatever. Yes. And then he was still playing with Reggie Miller. That's the best. You know, so you have this incredible chain, you know. So even like like Wayne, like the way the guy, I told you the way people skates differently, but you think, well, Wayne Gretzky played against Yammer Yager. Yes. And he was wasn't like Yammer Yager was so much better than him. I mean, he was great. He was the best player. And then Yammer Yager just retired a few years ago. Well, Sampras, it's like Sampras. Sampras got to play with fed yeah and sampras got to play with connors right and it's an amazing it's an amazing thing to think of a guy who bridged that and i saw stuff. something incredible that you should look up which was is a youtube thing i came across it again i never would have found it in the old days it was 
Hannes Wagner. Oh my God. In like yeah. in his early sixties, hitting balls. Like the way they used to hit him, well, which those, is those and he's Babe, great. Have you, those Babe Ruth clips are amazing. Yeah. Have you seen those Babe yes. Ruth clips where he's talking about the different ways he hits? I saw one the other day where he's comparing a baseball swing to a golf swing. And I when as we were kids, we never saw Babe Ruth talking. Right. Right. I can't until now I never really you'd see an interview. Oh well, I went to the but you with a with a and you're like you're watching trying to see the athleticism right through our grandfather's eyes right it's, it's i think because with wagner because they had better film because you never really saw like I, I remember a kid in high school saying babe ruth was terrible you see how he runs he runs right. all herky jerky well, that was just the yeah that was the frames yeah of course yeah. the frames all right we got it we got to wrap this up rich cone folks listen i've obviously um read you know I, i've read so many of his books I mean, i'm looking at, at all of them now and um he's a great writer definitely Read the new one, When the Game Was War, the NBA's Greatest Season. I cannot recommend enough The Adventures of Herbie Cohn, World's Greatest Negotiator. Do you think that the Sweet and Low book is better read before or after? The, or like the Herbie book is where you'd start. So if it, yeah. In that story, because you, you, you nest that story into... I retell them. So like, you could almost you look do, at the right? Sweet and Low thing as a backstory. Right, because so, it's much more detailed about. It. I mean, not only the events. Yeah, read the Herbie sh- book first, and yeah. then you'll want to read Sweet and Low, which is what happened for me and Amy, my wife. Like we went back to the Sweet and, and Low book, which is just also fantastic. Um, and the Jerry Weintraub book and the Rolling Stones book, and Tough Jews, where it all started for you, Rich. Thanks for being here and doing this. Thanks for writing these books. I can't wait to read your next one. Thank you. I had a great time. Love your show. <laughs> <laughs>